BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back, Congressman Ro Khanna is here with us. He represents the 17th District of California, Silicon Valley area, and he is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He's also on Elijah Cummings' House Oversight Committee, among others. His website, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna, R-O Khanna. And Congressman Khanna, welcome back to the program. It's great to be back on. Why did Trump go to the hospital on Saturday? Uh, my most cynical take was that maybe he's setting up a 25th Amendment, because the 25th Amendment was passed in 65 after Kennedy was shot, to deal with what if he hadn't been shot in the head? What if he had just been shot in the chest or something and he was out of, out of commission for six months? There's no mechanism in the Constitution for the vice president to take over. So let's put this into the Constitution. So. You know, if Trump claims that he had a little mini stroke or something like that and he leaves office, it's just like his bone spurs, you know, got him out of Vietnam in another medical deferment, basically. And then on the way out, he pardons Stone and Manafort and Flynn, who could, you know, conceivably in the future testify against him or his family. And then Pence comes in and pardons Trump and the whole Trump crime family and anybody else who might be able to testify that Pence had any role in all this, which is exactly what George Bush the elder did in December of 92 on the advice of then Attorney General Bill Barr. Uh, so that's our theory. Anyway, what do you think? Well, I appreciate you pointing out Bill Barr's role in 92, the uh, December Christmas pardons uh, to let off anyone who was involved in Iran contract. Yep. I don't know whether uh, Trump's going to do that now or run through re-election, but I do think that whenever he loses or whenever he leaves office, that's a very likely scenario that he would first pardon everyone, transfer power to, to Pence for a few weeks even, and then have Pence pardon him and everyone else. And it's why uh, it's going to be hard to get criminal prosecution against him and, and why we have to do our jobs in Congress to hold people accountable. Yeah. And, and, you know, and we set a bad precedent, I think, in 92 or 93 by not looking back at Iran-Contra. And then again in 2009, I would argue that we set a bad precedent by not looking back at the war crimes and things. But that's a whole other rant, I suppose, for another day. Someone, someone has to look at the pardon power, and I don't think it can just be absolute uh, and that that was the framers' intent. I mean, that it's yeah. really been abused. Yeah, it was, it was the one kingly power. It was sort of the, uh, the sop that they threw to Alexander Hamilton. But. <laughs> anyway, okay, let's pick up phone calls for you. you got a bunch of them already. Phil in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, listening to WRRD. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Uh Hello, gentlemen. It's my honor to speak with you. 
my question is in regards to the far-right nationalist movement that's really getting a strong foothold, I think, in our Republican Party. What's your take on Gavin McGinnis's relationship, the Proud Boys, and some of these far-right racists and their relationship with Roger Stone, Ted Cruz, and how much is Trump aware of and involved with this? Phil, is deeply disturbing. My understanding is that the president and his team view that base as, quote-unquote, their last defense. That is the base that is going to stand up for the president even when others leave him. They have become more mobilized, more vocal in the Republican Party, and particularly in low-turnout Republican primaries. And it's one of the reasons that uh, my colleagues have been reluctant to speak out against this president in any way. Randy in Onawa, Iowa. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hello, Ro. Uh, Congressman Kana. There are two pieces of legislation that were passed under George Bush. And one of them was the Postal Service have to require 75 years to pay in advance on the retirement plans. The other one was the stimulus or the tax breaks for offshoring corporations. In this new Congress, have you taken any steps to correct either one of those legislations? And I want to thank you for being involved with J.D. Shulton as well. I appreciate that, Randy. We have taken steps in terms of uh, trying to get rid of the tax deferral Uh, which incentivized corporations to go offshore. The Progressive Caucus has a budget that says that if a company has foreign earnings, they should be taxed at the full corporate tax rate. Unfortunately, Trump did exactly the opposite. What Trump's tax cut bill did is allow companies to go offshore and pay no tax, not even having tax incentive. It's just basically if you're offshore, you, you don't pay tax. So it's going to require a progressive president to uh, reverse that, to uh, help uh, make sure that you're paying tax if you're overseas. And on the post office, similarly, there are a number of progressive bills that the House has introduced, but we don't have a Republican Senate or a Republican president willing to sign that. And J.D. is terrific. He's going to flip Steve King's district in rural Iowa and, and be a great progressive legislator in Congress. Wonderful. Paul in Glenside, Pennsylvania. You're on the air with Congressman Conn. Uh, hi, Congressman. I'd like to discuss the uh, what I consider to be the imperial presidency and just so much absolute power that lies within the hands of uh, the president, in particular, the presidential pardon. I understand it's a part of the Constitution, but you know, so are a lot of other things that aren't there anymore. I really think it's time, if Congress has any hope in the future of truly holding a president accountable, that they have to get rid of the presidential pardon and set up a, a federal uh, commission for clemency and for determination of you know false uh, you know uh, uh, pr- prosecution. You can't hold Trump or anybody responsible for any kind of crime when they have a magical wand to get out of jail for everyone around them who's committing crimes at their behest and then eventually can lead up to them. I think Congress needs to announce that it's time for this to be over with and it's time to move into the 21st century of modern governance. You just can't have a guy that can do that. Anybody, the next 10 presidents, for that matter. 
The Constitution says that, you know, it talks about the pardon power, and then it says accepting cases of impeachment. And to the best of my knowledge, that has never been adjudicated by the Supreme Court or any other court. And does that mean that when a president is under investigation for impeachment, that during that time he can't issue pardons? I mean, if so, or if the Democrats were to take that position and publicize that position, that might encourage the guys that we know are waiting for pardons, Manafort and Flynn in particular. I mean, Flynn has changed his whole legal strategy to being all Fox News all the time and probably Roger Stone as well, that might incentivize all three of them to actually turn on Trump because he's lost his pardon power. On the other hand, if that means that he can't pardon himself from him, I mean, I, I don't think that anybody knows what that means, or do you know what that no, means? No, I think it's ambiguous, and it's unclear whether it would just mean himself, because presumably, I mean, impeachment is about removal from office. It's not about a, a crime. So I don't think it could have meant just uh, don't pardon yourself because uh, you could be impeached and uh, you're not still convicted. My sense is it's probably more broadly there to prevent the president from intimidating witnesses or people who would give evidence that in a trial or preventing uh, him from uh, luring them into giving false testimony. But you're right that it hasn't been litigated, uh, and it's something that Democrats should do and see if we can get the Supreme Court to weigh in. And to the caller's question, I mean, I completely agree with him. The power of the pardon should be given to a federal agency and not to a, one person. Congress should try to do something with the states. We, it would require a constitutional amendment to change that. And we also remain the only Western democracy that doesn't have an independent agency to deal with corruption. I mean, you can't have Congress, people like me and the Oversight Committee, responsible for holding government accountable for every corrupt activity. In most other countries, they have a whole agency that isn't briefly accountable to the president to do that. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, too. Morris in Long Beach, California, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Good morning, everybody. Hey, Congressman, we got a resurrection going on here, and I'm not talking Jesus. The Mueller report, I understand that since Roger Stone has now been convicted, a lot of stuff y'all couldn't get to, you can get to now. And I understand that your impeachment in uh, inquiry attorneys now are requesting some things in some courts, right? That's going to lead directly to the president. And they thought that thing was dead. It's coming back to get him. So when you talk about some new articles of impeachment, because there's one thing that's not going to get him. I think with Ukraine, because they keep moving the goalposts. They keep moving the goalposts, right? So your new articles, they've got to come out of the, the Mueller report, and he thought it was there. There's a resurrection of it. Do you think I'm crazy? Do you think there's something coming out of that? Well, Morris, I agree with you that uh, Roger Stone's conviction shows that there was a lot there in the Mueller report. It's very clear that the Russians interfered. It's very clear that there was a coordinated effort on these WikiLeaks to try to embarrass the Clinton campaign. And I believe that both the Mueller report about the Russia fiasco and the current situation with Ukraine is evidence that this president has basically used the apparatus of government uh, and foreign power relationships to benefit himself politically and to hurt political rivals. And that should be the story comprehensively that Democrats tell, and that is the grounds for our impeachment. Tim in Houston, Texas, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Good morning, y'all. I've got a quick question or two for you, Representative. It's got to do with the Constitution and the three branches of government. The Constitution begins, we the people, 
which basically means you representatives should be the ones ruling the roost. However, everybody keeps saying, well, no, we've got three equal branches of government, meaning you can pack the Supreme Court just like the Republicans have done already and taken all our rights away from us. And I was wondering if there's, is there any chance of planting a germ of an idea in anybody's head to uh, have the Democratic Party run on that plank? You're on to something. Uh, Our slogan in 2018 was for the people. It was based on the preamble of we the people. And our campaign in 2020 is going to be that we need to return our democracy to citizens and that there has been corruption at the highest levels of government, corruption with the special interests. Our democracy is broken and the Democrats are going to stand up for returning democracy to people again. Put very simply, I think any of our candidates will have that message. You know, I was just reading the uh, Article 2 here. You know, he's talking about the presidency. He shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. And just before that, it's talking about the he's the principal officer of all the executive branches. I'm wondering if they were thinking that the, the, the president can't pardon one of his junior officers, you know, like the oh, secretary of state, who's being impeached. Right. I wonder if that's what they yeah. No, it's ambiguous, but uh, I'm sure that's what uh, Trump's team would argue, unfortunately. Yeah, it seems to make sense. We'll be right back with Congressman Ro Khanna. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Why You Should Be a Socialist by Nathan Robinson. This is from the introduction. In the last few years, U.S. politics has been completely upended. The presidency of Donald Trump, which took politicians and commentators by total surprise, shattered a number of Washington orthodoxies. Very few experts thought that a loquacious, loutish reality TV star was capable of rising to the nation's highest office. But they had misjudged political reality and forgotten the cardinal rule anything can happen. Trump's improbable rise to power was not the only political irregularity to occur over the last several years. While Trump was defeating the most powerful figures in the country's two major political parties, another unexpected phenomena was occurring, the rise of a new radicalism on the left. When Bernie Sanders began his campaign for the 2016 Democratic presidential nomination, no one expected him to pose a serious challenge to Hillary Clinton. Clinton was the consensus choice of the party establishment. Influential Democrats openly said it was her turn. Sanders was in the race as a protest candidate. Not only was he considered a marginal figure in Washington, lacking both connections and funding, but he did not have any of the characteristics that traditionally had made one electable. He was old. He was from a tiny state known for hippies and cheese. He was not particularly photogenic, polished, or popular. And he was an avowed socialist in a country that had had a half-century Cold War between good American capitalism and evil Soviet socialism. It was not, however, a year in which the traditional criteria of electability would matter especially much. Sanders, perhaps as much to his own surprise as anybody else's, quickly attracted a significant following. His radical message, stingingly critical of the existing Democratic Party, resonated strongly with progressives who felt let down by Obama and viewed Clinton as part of an uninspiring and possibly corrupt political dynasty. When the first primary contest came around, February's 2016 Iowa caucuses, Sanders achieved a shockingly strong result, coming close to beating Clinton outright. 
as Sanders began to fill stadiums with crowds, attracting a highly visible and well-organized following. It quickly became clear that the race would not be the coronation that Clinton had anticipated. Clinton ultimately won the Democratic nomination, but it took a bruising fight. Sanders was no mere protest candidate. He was a serious competitor who won 23 contests to, Lincoln's, to Clinton's 34. While Clinton received over 16 million votes across the various primaries, Sanders achieved a remarkable 13 million. It was surprising enough that a socialist candidate could be anything more than a gadfly in a major party do nominating contest. It was downright stunning that such a candidate could rack up nearly two dozen primary victories against one of the most experienced and well-connected members of the Democratic Party. Sanders' unexpected rise to prominence represented an extraordinary shift in the political landscape. The nearest precedent was Eugene Debs' 1920 presidential run on the Socialist Party ticket. Debs achieved nearly a million votes, despite being in prison for defying the World War I draft. But even Debs didn't pose a serious electoral threat to the dominant parties, receiving only 3% of the general election vote. Sanders, who once recorded a spoken word Eugene Debs tribute album and kept a portrait of Debs in his office while mayor of Burlington, Vermont, achieved a far greater measure of success. He may not have started the political revolution that he often spoke of, but he came relatively close to poaching the presidential nomination from the party elite's pre-selected candidate. The Sanders campaign was fueled by millennials whose dissatisfaction with mainstream Democrats made them highly responsive to Sanders' progressive alternative. Clinton may have had more supporters than Sanders overall, but young people of all races and genders preferred Sanders over Clinton by large margins. With the exception of Lena Dunham, it is hard to find many people under 30 who had much enthusiasm for Clinton, a candidate they associated with Wall Street, cronyism, and the Iraq disaster. Sanders' success with millennials, while unanticipated by pollsters, did not occur purely because of Sanders' political skill. It happened because a revolt had been brewing among young progressives for years, as they had steadily grown more and more alienated from the Democratic Party mainstream. Ever since the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011, young people in the United States had been becoming increasingly radicalized. Weighted down with debt, paying through the nose for health insurance, unable to afford to have kids, and frustrated by an undemocratic political system that implements the policy preferences of rich elites, millennials were both frustrated and tired. Sanders came along at just the right moment. They had been waiting for someone to say what was on their minds, that the economic and political systems were unfair at their core and needed a drastic overhaul. But the Sanders campaign was just the start. Joe Crowley had been in Congress for 20 years and was one of the highest ranking members of the House Democrats. He was considered a serious contender for the party leadership and known in his New York City district as a well-connected part of the local Democratic machine. He was the sort of backroom deal-making congressman whose influence is disproportionate to his name recognition. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was not an important figure in the Democratic Party, far from it. She was a 28-year-old bartender and activist who had once interned for Ted Kennedy and had worked for Bernie Sanders' campaign. A member of the Democratic Socialists of America, she was considered the longest of long shots in her primary contest against Crowley. Crowley had endorsements from powerful political organizations like the AFL-CIO. Why You Should Be a Socialist by Nathan J. Robinson. Stephen in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you're on the air. Yes, in line with what you've been talking about, I was wondering, if the Constitution says the president's not above the law, then don't the pardon powers allow the president to be above the law? 
David, that's a great point. I do think the power and powers are one of the things that are similar to monarchical powers that are above the law. And as Tom Hartman pointed out, the Alexander Hamilton and our founding wanted a much stronger presidency. He felt that the president had to have some king-like powers. In most places, he lost the debate. But this is one place where uh, the president did get this power. And, you know, there's the famous, you know, you go back to the Merchant of Venice, there was this romantic ideal of the king being able to grant mercy, grant uh, a pardon in cases where justice may have been denied. Of course, that's not how the pardon power has been used. It's been used to abuse justice, not to grant mercy for people who seek it. Reginald in Houston, Texas, you're on the air with Congressman Akana. You know, Dr. King said that America was the biggest purveyor of violence in the world. And we have since 9-11, and Eisenhower talked about the military-industrial complex, that Pentagon budget has been increased, in, and every administration has uh, increased it. And we could take an aircraft carrier and maybe pay for the new Medicare for all that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders is talking about. If we were to audit that, why wouldn't we audit it? And why is both Democrats and Republicans given this unchecked military budget to go and create wars everywhere and maybe and seems like they're pushing Trump to do wars and maybe they'll upset because he's not doing war or likely to go to war like the previous administrations because we have to keep that engine going to feed that beast at the expense of and up other countries and not repent from that. Can we audit that budget and hold ourselves accountable? Well, Reginald, one can believe in the importance of America's role in the world and have great respect for our military and still believe, as I do, that our military budget is out of control. When Bill Clinton left office, we had a military budget of about $400 billion. We're now talking about a military budget of $738 billion, $100 billion of which is an overseas contingency fund, which is designed to fund potential wars that haven't even been authorized by Congress. So I completely agree with you that instead of having these massive increases in our military budget, and by the way, Trump has increased the military budget almost $100 billion since Obama left, we'd be better off putting that money towards having free college, towards having Medicare for all, towards having a real infrastructure bill and having universal broadband. That should be our priority. Anthony in St. Augustine, Florida, you're on the air. Wasn't there an agreement back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, between Secretary of State James Baker and Mikhail Gorbachev that in exchange for the breakup of the Soviet Union and the reunification of Germany, that NATO would not move any further east? Anthony, it's a very thoughtful question. I've asked that actually in uh, the House Armed Services Committee. The reporting suggests at least that that was Russia's understanding, that we wouldn't be increasing the eastward expansion of NATO. I don't think it was ever formalized in an agreement, but that certainly seemed to be the party's understandings. It's why I don't think it makes sense to be pushing for Ukraine or Georgia or other Baltic states to be part of NATO. How do you see our relationship with Russia and with Ukraine resolving? Well, I think it's going to require, of course, diplomacy. I mean, I believe that Russia was wrong in their in invasion of Ukraine, but we need to push to make sure Russia allows Ukraine to have sovereignty and then to see how they can be negotiated so that they're allowed back in eventually into the G7, but not before they uh, acknowledge that the invasion was wrong. Yeah. 
Harlow in Pocatello, Idaho. You are on the air with Congressman Khanna. Thank you, Tom, for taking my call, and thank you for your service, Congressman. Thank you. My question is, the, the money, the funds for Ukraine were released and authorized by Congress to be paid. Was there a date set for them to go to Ukraine? Or is this what set off the whistleblower, because he knew the money should have been sent, and everybody was like, why wasn't the money sent? Well, my understanding is that the money should have been sent soon after the July 25th call, and it was delayed and wasn't sent until uh, September. And, in fact, there is testimony from some of the witnesses based on the public reporting and the depositions that that money should have been sent, that there was concern of illegality, that the money was being held. And this is why a number of individuals like Laura Cooper and others were going to senior people at the National Security Council concerned that the White House was breaking the law. Joe in Cupertino, California, you're on the air with your congressman. Thank you, Tom. Tom, let me just say thank you so much for introducing Randy Rhodes to me, because I just was going to throw out Navgas. Is that the name of the company that was in uh, Ukraine that was providing natural gas for, I guess, from 91 all the way up till today? Yeah, Randy's brilliant. Yeah. And, uh, Congressman, I just wanted to give a shout out to uh, Safe to Tell Act, the the Eagle Act of uh, H.R. 3714 for the gun safety violence for the high school kids. I'm just really concerned about that every day. At any rate, uh, I'm really grateful to have this representative democracy. You're on top of everything. And I had an opportunity to speak with uh, Parmila Jayapal last week. We were discussing the difference between Bernie Sanders' bill and H.R. 1384. Here I see over the weekend that you've come out with what's the state-based universal health care act. It's amazing how these ideas spread from Maryland to Michigan. My my question, sir, is... uh, can we look at this from a regional standpoint? I mean, with the Washington, Oregon, California, possibly Nevada, maybe a Western regional approach to try to deal with what is really something that we're doing really well in our county. I mean, in our county here in Santa Clara, the provider is pretty much the county. And the insurance is affordable. It's expensive, but it's affordable. And it's going to be even more affordable in the future. But we all participate. I would say we probably have an 80 to 90 percent insured in this county. And I think that we could to demonstrate that nationally. Maybe we wouldn't have such resistance. You're, it's, it's up to you to try to spur this as you do support Bernie's Medicare for all plan. Well, Joe, I appreciate your calling in and referencing my bill to give states the ability to do single-payer systems. When you look at why Vermont, which tried single-payer, failed, it's because they could not get the federal funding waivers. They weren't allowed to use uh, Medicare and Medicaid money to design their single-payer system. And the problem is you can't have a single-payer system uh, that only covers some individuals. You can't have a system of having Medicare, Medicaid, regional, uh, and uh, the state covering those who are left out, because then you'd have four systems. You wouldn't have the administrative cost savings. You wouldn't have the overbilling savings. So you need to have the states do one everyone under one system, but you can't expect them to do everyone under one 
system and not get the federal funding for Medicare and Medicaid. It'd be impossible for states to do that. And so what my bill does is allow them to use the Medicare and Medicaid funding if they're guaranteeing 95% coverage and better benefits than what the federal government uh, guarantees. This is how single payer started in Canada, where Saskatchewan uh, showed that they could do it. And I'm hoping states like California, Vermont, Massachusetts can take the lead uh, to put more pressure on the federal government to have a federal system. That is brilliant, Congressman. Thank you for doing that. Alexis in Brookline, Massachusetts, you're on the air with Congressman Ro Khanna. Hi, I wanted to ask about oversight, because as we well know, there has been zero oversight of the Trump administration so far. And I'm hoping that that will be end up being part of the articles of impeachment. But let's just say that our worst nightmares happen and the Senate lets them off the hook. What does the Democratic caucus plan on doing to ensure continual oversight of the Trump administration if he's left in power? It's a great question. It's something on our minds in the caucus. We're hoping still to make a very aggressive case so that the Senate doesn't acquit. But if the Senate does acquit, one danger is that this president may feel even more emboldened, even more emboldened to defy any subpoena, to defy any oversight function. We are still going to be very, very aggressive in the oversight committee over accountability of the EPA, accountability of the immigration agencies, accountability on the emoluments clause. But I share your concern that if this president is acquitted by this Senate, he's going to feel more emboldened to to violate this Constitution. That is why I hope some people in the Senate will do their constitutional duty and check this president. Randy in Gardnerville, Nevada, you are on the air with Congressman Khanna. Good day, Congressman Khanna. Does a pardon pardon preclude testifying? No, I do not think that a pardon in, in any way prohibits a person from testifying. But I think what you're seeing is that people are not testifying against Trump because they are trying to get pardoned and they don't fear being held in contempt of Congress or obstructing justice because they're calculating that Trump would pardon them for those crimes. James in Shawnee, Kansas. You're on the Earth, Congressman Connor. Oh, thanks for taking my call. Shawnee, Kansas, home of uh, Sharice Davis, the new blue wave Democratic representative. Cool. Uh, Congressman, my question regards the Senate's ability to hold a secret vote. There seems to be a lot of confusion and there's no real definitive answer. What does it take for the Senate to approve a secret vote on articles of impeachment? James, I do not know the answer to that question, and I don't want to give you a, uh, a false answer. I will have my staff looked into it, and if you contact our office, I'm happy to look into it. Tom, I don't know if you know the Senate procedures. I, I read an article about it in the New York Times last week that's my understanding from reading that article, and I don't have any beyond that, was that it's a, it's a matter of amending the Senate rules under which they're operating and that the Senate can change its rules with a majority vote. So it would just take you know, what, 51 votes, I guess, something like that, change the rules. And the theory is that if they had a private vote, that there's probably 20 or 30 Republicans who would flip on on Trump if they weren't accountable for the vote. 
Yeah, I, I, I do think that that would like to be the case, that some Republicans and even possibly a majority would flip on Trump. I'm skeptical that McConnell would allow that to happen, that kind right. of private vote, because he's 15 points underwater in his own state, running 15 points behind Trump. And if he were to do that, he would lose all of Trump's base. So it's a political matter. I'm unfortunately skeptical that McConnell will let that go forward. Yeah, I think your analysis is probably absolutely accurate. Michelle in Capitol Heights, Maryland, you're on the air with Congressman McConnell. Good afternoon, Professor Hartman. Um, thank you for taking my call again. And good afternoon, Congressman Connor. Thank you. Good afternoon. So I just, I, uh, uh, Professor Hartman, you were speaking earlier about pardons, and I know that those have been brought up as well while you were on the call, Congressman. But I, uh, you know, I'm just using a little bit of my legal brain that I have. And I just want to say that if the president or if Mr. Trump pardons any of the players that are participating, as well as if something were to uh, go along with your theory, Professor Hartman, about Mr. Pence pardoning people, under the United States Supreme Court case Burdick versus the United States from 1915, the Supreme Court ruled that an acceptance of a pardon is an imputation of guilt. And so you're basically confessing to the crime that you were pardoned for. Is that not That's really interesting, Michelle. Well, I appreciate that insight. I did not know that case. I do think that that's a point that Democrats need to be making more clearly, that these individuals looking for a pardon are basically admitting that they're guilty of the crimes they're being accused of. It's a, it's a very interesting point. Joy in Crescent City, California. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Good morning. Thank you so much for taking my call. Where I live here in Crescent City is the location of Pelican Bay Maximum Security Prison. Right now, inmates are being used to fight the California fires, and they're only getting paid a dollar an hour. And what I'm wondering is if there's a way that they could actually be paid either minimum wage or a larger wage, and that that money could be saved in an account that is given to them when they are released from prison. I gave a, in a, a parolee a ride. I picked up a parolee in April, and he was given $200 to um, walk off the prison grounds, and he had to buy his clothes in order to leave. And he is actually back in prison now. And so my question is, is if, if it would be possible to pay these prisoners more money, then they could have money when they get out of prison that could help that transition and maybe prevent some of these recidivism rates. And I'll take my question, your answer off the air. Thank you very much. Joy, thank you for that eloquent statement. I agree with every word of it. I've been speaking out against the inhumane treatment of these prisoners. They are having to fight these fires at some personal risk. They're being paid a dollar a day, far below any market wage. We should be paying them for this labor, and they should be able to have that savings so that when they get out, they have some shot at starting a meaningful life and don't have to resort to crime again. Nathan in Omaha, Nebraska, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. I wanted your general sense on Cenk Uger running for Congress, which I just heard over the weekend. 
Well, Ed and I have uh, supported Jenk. I've known Jenk for many years. I believe he has a clear vision uh, on supporting Medicare for All, a $15 minimum wage, most importantly getting private money uh, out of our politics. He's done a, a great job at the Young Turks Network of mobilizing uh, progressives around the country. And so, uh, you know, I, I know him uh, and like him. I would say the exact same thing. And in fact, I would even go so far as, to, well, I, I shouldn't say I endorse him right now because I have no idea what the race is and I need to look at it. But I would, uh, generally speaking, in principle, I would endorse Jenk for anything. <laughs> he's, he's, I've known him for years. <laughs> and I have I, endorsed him out of full disclosure. Oh, I have endorsed him. In well, in that right. case, then I'll endorse him too. We're in agreement on this. Joe in Santa Barbara, California. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hi, uh, hi, Congressman. Thanks for taking the time out to talk to the people. Uh, my, Thank question you. Is about, my question is about the Patriot Act. Does that come up for, uh, for any kind of review? Joe, it does, uh, I, and I don't know when the next re review is. I, of course, was opposed to the Patriot Act. By the way, one of the, my heroes in politics, Russ Feingold, I think was one of the only uh, no votes originally against the Patriot Act because he foresaw how intrusive it would be, and it set the stage for some of the mass surveillance and data collection that we're dealing with uh, now, now not just with the federal government but also the corporate uh, actors. But every time that it has come up in Congress, there are those of us in the progressive community who tried to uh, repeal the, the, the excessive parts of it, and we're going to continue to try to push for that. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Well, I wanted to ask him why he thinks a patchwork deal of health care, of letting the states choose, is going to work. Because when they gave people, the, the states, the option to expand Medicaid, it did not happen here. We've had eight outbreaks of tuberculosis, two outbreaks of hepatitis A. Everybody here across the South is underemployed. They're classified as part-time, temporary, seasonal, and they can never, ever afford any kind of a health insurance policy, but they can afford to go to the doctor on expanded Medicare for all. And when you deprive them of the opportunity of getting expanded Medicare for all, you also deprive them of freedom because they can quit their nasty job and go somewhere else because they would still be covered under expanded Medicare for all. We cannot afford to have sick people walking around serving food or cleaning your child's desk. Norma, let's, let's, let's let Congressman uh, Connor respond. Well, Norma, I actually agree with you. I mean, I, first of all, let me just be clear. I am for a federal government, single-payer, Medicare for all, improved Medicare for all for every person. And I agree with you that one of the consequences of states doing single-payer would be that many states wouldn't do it. My only point is if we could get California, Vermont, or Massachusetts to do it, it will put more pressure on the federal government to make sure that we have single-payer in every state. But I, I completely agree with your concerns about some states not being willing to do it. Yeah, and for 11 years on this show, that was Bernie's suggestion, was individual states do it, and pretty soon it'll go national. With all the problems unfolding for the Fed and central banks, you may be asking some very important questions. How close are we to the next economic collapse? What will it look like just before the crash? And how can I protect my investments and my retirement? There are a few people better suited to answer these questions than ITM Trading's chief market analyst, Lynette Zhang. Her fact-based research on the markets, currencies, and economy is second to none, and her videos have prepared people for almost every major downfall in the U.S. economy this year. If you haven't heard of Lynette Zhang and ITM Trading, I highly recommend looking them up. 
They're pioneers in economic education, and they're experts at creating strategies to protect you against the next inevitable crisis. If you're looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile economy since 2007, go to youtube.com slash itmtrading. I recommend learning as much as you can before the next crisis hits so you can make the most educated choices while there's still time. That's youtube.com slash itmtrading. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Julia in Auburn, Washington. You're on the earth, Congressman Connor. So I read Rahm Emanuel's piece in Politico last week, and he talked about how the Democrats need to win is addressing nuts and bolts issues like fixing the roads and doing things like that, rather than the big progressive agendas of Medicare for all and the Green New Deal. And I wanted to get the congressman's point of view on that. Julia, I read that, too. Uh, Democrats win when we have vision. First of all, Medicare for all single-payer is not an idea that is new. Harry Truman proposed this. Lyndon Johnson tried to get it done. Ted Kennedy in 1971 proposed a health care single-payer for all bill that the Nixon White House scored as being 66% of national health expenditure, means it would have saved 33%. That was Nixon's health department that did this. Jimmy Carter in 76 runs on a national single-payer mandatory bill and wins. And, of course, Ted Kennedy challenges him in 1980 in the primary, partly because he didn't think enough progress had been made on this. So this is something we've been for as a party for 50 years. We've had candidates, uh, very successful candidates, win on it. And I think the Democrats have to stand up for our principles and explain why we're for this. We believe health care is a human right. We don't believe that the for-profit motive is going to deliver. We think that in this country you have 17% of our GDP for health care, double what other countries have, and yet we don't have better health care outcomes, and that we're going to save money and provide better benefits from single payer. We need to stop attacking Democrats are providing a Democratic vision and using Republican talking points. That, in my view, is the problem. Bill in Clifton, New Jersey. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. I just want to quickly mention to Tom that the 25th Amendment, I think, requires a full complement of cabinet members. Yes. We but, don't have but that. If, um, uh, oh, I see what you're saying. You, there's so many acting members that it can't be done. Right. Yeah, I don't and think then, that's been adjudicated. Uh, but anyhow, to oh. your question. With health insurance, we were able to limit the profitability under the ACA. We could bring that down to zero so they become nonprofit again, and that would save a lot of money. The other thing is if we lower the Medicare age to 50, the pool of uh, healthy people would be so high that the cost would go down really low. The second point, meaning if we uh, expand it to 50, you're saying, Bill? Yeah, he's, he's suggesting that if we lowered the age to 50, you'd have so many healthy people who wouldn't be sucking money out of Medicare, yet they'd be paying into it. Well, Bill, I, uh, I appreciate your, your first comment about debating uh, uh, what it takes to, to invoke the 25th Amendment uh, is just reinforcement about how, Tom, you have one of the most informed uh, audiences of any show. I appreciate the point on Medicare for 50. Look, I'm for Medicare for all, but Warren's plan, and, I, and frankly, even Sanders' transition starts out with going to Medicare to 55, Medicare to 50. That step is in the right direction of getting to, to Medicare for all. Greg, in Mountain Home, Arkansas, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Yes, hi, Congressman. Um, I was wondering if you saw the L.A. Times article on the Marshall Islands people, and after all the nuclear tests, uh, like the Bikini Atoll, 
And we allocated $3 billion to help the people, but we've only given them $4 million. And I was just curious if you knew if there's any plans to help them along. Greg, I haven't seen that article. I appreciate your raising it. If you write into my office, or I'm happy to tell my staff to look into it to make sure that we do what we said we would. Your thoughts going forward on what we should be looking for, where we should be focusing our activism? Well, I would say, uh, Tom, two things. One, on the impeachment, uh, we shouldn't uh, concede that the Senate is just going to acquit some of the testimony that keeps coming out recently of uh, Mr. Holmes, uh, that the president basically admitted to wanting these investigations. We need to keep driving home that narrative and making the case as strongly as we can. And then on health care, I believe it's so important that we get the facts out about single-payer health care, how that's been something we've been advocating as a Democratic Party since Truman almost for 70 years, and how it's, in my view, the only way to lower costs and get universal coverage. Yeah, that was absolutely brilliant. I'm, I'm going to ask you for the, that summary of Carter and Kennedy and all those other people offline. But Congressman Connor, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. It, it really is. And it's great talking with you. I really appreciate it. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. His Twitter handle is RepRoKana. You can reach his website at Kana.house.gov, K-H-A-N-N-A. He is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Audrey in Chicago. Hey, Audrey, what's on your mind? I'm calling because I wanted to comment on a comment that was made by Representative Devin Nunes. I think mm-hmm. he was saying how he suspects that the Democratic Party members are just giddy about the impeachment process mm-hmm. and that he doesn't believe what the members of Congress are saying about how somber and prayerful and sad they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to say this. I am prayerful, but I am giddy. Yes. Um, I am giddy. They can coexist. <laughs> Me too. Yes. yes. I am a veteran of the U.S. Army. I'm a black woman in America. And, you know, if Devin Nunes is so blessed uh, that he has no appreciation for how wonderful it is to have justice done upon unjust people, good for him. But this man, this president, has done nothing but prove how unfit and unqualified he is the moment he took the oath. Um, He has violated his oath. Uh, I took an oath, too. I took an oath to defend the United States Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Uh, And this man has done nothing uh, short of proving himself to be a domestic enemy. And it is pitiful that he is our commander-in-chief. So I am just giddy that justice is being done to hold him accountable. And hopefully, you know, I don't know if the Senate's going to vote him out, but we should impeach him. At least one branch of our government or part of one branch of our government is upholding its constitutional oath. I am giddy. Yeah, I'm with you, Audrey. And you use the word enemy. Um, I think one of the crimes for which Donald Trump should be impeached, or at least it should be mentioned, is his use of that phrase, enemy of the people, that Joe Stalin and Mao Zedong used to justify murdering journalists. And he has referred to the press over and over as enemy of the people. I think that's just obscene. Audrey, thank you for the call. Kia in Las Vegas. Hey, Kia, what's up? Mm -hmm. Will Pompeo and Bolton be forced to testify once the impeachment inquiry goes to the Senate? Yes. You know, that's a good question. uh, I'm guessing it'll be the same problem. I mean, you know, Trump has been has been blocking all efforts by Congress uh, in, in my opinion, in violation of the Constitution and the law. 
both in the case of Bill Clinton and in the case of Richard Nixon, the Supreme Court ruled, no, you have to provide evidence. You know, you have to turn over the tapes to Nixon. You have to testify before a grand jury to, to Clinton. Whether, whether the Republicans can preserve their firewall when it gets to the Senate is a, is a question that I don't know the answer to, Kia. We'll see if anybody else does. But I, I think that we're all speculating right now. We don't we we just don't know how low these guys will go, how far they will stoop to cover up on behalf of Donald Trump. John in Langley, Washington. Hey, John, what's up? Good day, Professor. I love your show. I learn a lot. Thank you. And when I think I have something to add, I even try to call in. I am fascinated with this whistleblower thing. You see, whistleblowers usually are catch and kill by lawyers, like you talked about to someone yesterday. Usually they go to the lawyer, they try to figure it out, they catch it, they kill it, and never makes it big time. Why is this one becoming exposed? And I think I figured it out. And Holmes gave me the clue, cued me in yesterday when he said, wow, the Ukrainians are actually going to spend some of their own money on these stingers. So that made me think about, okay, the money flow, the money flow, who's not getting their money if Trump doesn't give aid to Ukraine? It's our military industrial complex. And when four, hmm. uh, several million, 400 million yeah. gets stopped from the cycle that's expected to come through, people get upset. So therefore, this whistleblower was, his content was valuable to a certain population of money flow people. Why do whistleblowers like, well, Julian Assange isn't even a whistleblower. He, they just couldn't find the whistleblower for the DNC, and they don't talk about the content of the DNC file. They don't talk about the content of the war crimes from Assange. We don't talk right, about so, the So content. the bottom line, John, what you're suggesting is that the whistleblower had some association with McDonnell Douglas or Raytheon or whoever makes javelin missiles, actually is what they're called, that somebody from that company was saying, hey, wait a minute, our 400 million bucks is not making its way into our checking account yet? Generally, yes. That's yeah. what I'm saying. When the okay. money flow gets stopped and people... Then, yeah. then no, I get it. I get it. And it's, it, you know, it's, it, and it's not impossible. It's not impossible. Although I suspect that the whistleblower actually was somebody that was there, who was an employee of the CIA, who had been detailed to the White House, who who, uh, you know, knew some of these folks. And, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Time will tell. George in Santee, California. Hey, George, what's on your mind today? From what I understand, either in an interview or a speech or something, President Obama gave a warning to the Democrats to not go too far to the left. Right. And I wonder if you or somebody in your audience could clear that up for me. What is too far to the left? Is it like too much health care, too easy access to higher education? I'm, I'm I, you sure know, this is a question I frequently ask myself and my listeners, George. I think too far to the left means having the federal government buy up corporations and start manufacturing cars and blue jeans and television sets. That's the far left, right? That's communism. Definitions, right? I mean, socialism, socialism basically means... All right, let me let me just hang on just a second. Let's, let me restart this. Capitalism means some people can get fabulously rich and lots and lots of people are going to be very poor. Raw capitalism, unregulated capitalism. Communism means nobody can get very rich and everybody can be very poor. I mean, the way it was acted out in the Soviet Union. Socialism means you can still get rich. Individuals can still get rich, but nobody gets poor. And, and, you know, that, that's the bottom line. I don't know what too far left is, you know, in, in, in Obama's worldview. And, and frankly, I think that uh, it's a question that should be asked more frequently. Uh, Steve in Park Ridge, Illinois. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? 
Tom, I want to compliment you for your insightful article at rawstory.com that I read this morning. Oh, is that the one on the billionaires and, and the end yeah. of democracy? Okay. Yeah. And civil war. Uh, Thank you. I, I've reposted it with my own brief commentary on my Facebook page, Concerned Citizen. Mm. For those interested in reading it, by the way, it now has over 34,000 followers. Uh, in any event, cool. could it happen here? Uh, I, I think we've got all three of the four already upon us. The control of a critical portion of our media, the legalization of bribery of public officials, control of the court system, and the thing that worries me for people like you and maybe a small fish like me is the establishment of a police state. Right. Could you just briefly comment on the article itself? Sure. I, I haven't seen the raw story version over on, uh, because when we, the IMI, the Independent Media Institute, when they syndicate my work, I think that the individual publications can change the headline to whatever they want. So the headline over at Alternet is Re Revenge of the Billionaires, How an Oligarchy of the Morbidly Rich Can Take Down Democracy. I'm not sure. Do you know what it was over on Raw Story? <laughs> That is the one that same, Ross story. Same title? Okay. Yeah, essentially what I started out the article by pointing out that the Atlantic magazine, the cover story, and the entire issue is devoted to how to stop a civil war. And the Atlantic magazine, of course, first came into print about five years before the Civil War of, 18, of the 1860s. And, 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 then, and then I said, basically, we are already in a civil war. It's just a cold war. It's not a hot war yet. And, and uh, that there are three parts necessary to take to be, for an oligarchy to arise, replace democracy with oligarchy. Uh, just for definitions, this is what uh, Aristotle said. He said, tyranny is a kind of monarchy which has in view the interests of the monarch only. Oligarchy has in view the interests of the wealthy, democracy of the needy. Okay, so that's, that's Aristotle's definitions. And the three things that I said are necessary for an oligarchy to replace a democracy are, number one, as you mentioned, control of or substantial influence over a critical portion of the media. Number two, legalization. Tom, that would be Fox and right-wing radio, for example. Well, and not just that. We now have about 80, 90 percent of our media is, is being brought to us by fewer than a dozen companies. And local newspapers are gone. Local ownership of radio and television stations is gone. I mean, you know, it's just everything's been subsumed by, by these very large corporations, number one. Number two, legalization of bribery of public officials. That happened in 1976 with the Buckley decision, 78 with the First National Bank decision, and then, of course, Citizens United in October of 2010. And then number yeah. three, control over the most critical parts of the court system so they can control legal processes. Initially, that's the Supreme Court, and now Trump has put over 150 people into courts just immediately below the Supreme Court. And then the fourth element, I said, once the oligarchy is well established, and we're, I think we're, if Trump gets reelected, we will be at that point. I expect that if Trump gets reelected within 18 months of this day, or within 18 months of the day that he gets reelected of, of a year from now, so it would be in about two years, you will begin seeing selective prosecutions. They probably won't even look like that because, you know, the way selective prosecution works is you can find dirt on anybody if you dig deep enough. And so what you'll start seeing are prominent voices on the left or people who are daring to challenge, particularly journalists, daring to challenge the establishment, are suddenly going to start getting busted for income tax evasion or for illegal possession of drugs or for, you know, whatever. I mean, fill in the blanks. Bogus things that basically silence their voice, correct? Yeah, they, they won't be bogus. I mean, you know, they, they will discover that, um, you know, back four years ago, 
so-and-so that they're trying to take down submitted it to their company, submitted a, a, a reimbursement for lunch, saying that it was a business lunch, and in fact they had lunch with their wife. And they will prosecute them for tax evasion. They will find something that can actually be used in a, in a court and prosecute these people. And then I pointed out that, you know, there's these, these four-generation cycle of great crashes and great wars, and we're in time for the fourth cycle. I've talked about that on this program many times, the fourth turning by Strauss and Howe and how the oligarchy machine is just basically running everything. And Jimmy Carter on this program just came right out and said it. We're no longer a democracy, we're an oligarchy. John in Mill Valley, listening in Real Talk 910. Hey, John, what's up? Hi, Tom, how are you? I am great, but I'll get better. How about you? I'm doing well. I, I'm enjoying the, um, unfortunately, I'm enjoying the, it with schadenfreude, the uh, misery that the Republicans are suffering. Yeah. With that in mind, I stumbled upon... Fox News early this morning, about 5.30 West Coast time, and I could tell that they were talking to Trump on Fox and Friends because I had the mute on, but all the hosts were holding their cell phones a foot away from their ears, and they were cringing. <laughs> Seriously? No, no, that was no, a joke. Serious. Okay, yeah, okay, thank you. I mean, I'm just like, you know, anything's possible, right? But, yeah. Uh, well, I, I made that up on the spot. Anyway, yeah, that was a good uh, I called... I called, thank you, I called to um, play the uh, What's the Republicans Done for uh, Americans game that you have. Oh, my 15-year running contest of, uh, you know, I'll send you a, an autographed book if you can name one piece of legislation that was initially supported, you know, brought out as legislation by Republicans, was passed with the majority of Republicans, was signed into law by Republicans. One single piece of legislation in the last 60 years that principally benefits average working people instead of wealthy people or corporations. Yes, you have one? The weekend before the Nixon 72, 1972 uh, election in October, uh, the last October in, in 1972, October, he signed into legislation the Golden Gate National Recreation Park bill, which established a, a park in three counties, San Mateo, San Francisco, and Marin County, and I think San Francisco, Sonoma County is now in it, too. So um, how do you know, John, that that wasn't something that was being pushed by wealthy real estate developers who owned property around the park who wanted to see the value of their property skyrocket? Well, that was, that was I'm sure that's part of it, but... Um, because that's, I mean, having people, a park, it's like, yeah, average people can use a park, but uh, typically when you well, see five, park, five park million politics. People, five, five, million, five million people visit the park every year. No, I, I get that. I'm, what, what I was yeah. thinking of was there was, a, there was a little mini scandal that I believe involved Mike Pence. It, uh, it might have been John Kasich that had to do with putting a, putting a park in, uh, on the waterfront by one of the Great Lakes or, or some river. And it turned out that the reason that he was going out of his way to get this park, people really want this park, was because uh, one of his largest donors owned a lot of the commercial property opposite the park, and they wanted the park to be established and not turned into competing businesses and things. And so, you know, I, I, I'd want to know the a little back backstory there before I would give you the book on that one, John. What was your other one? Uh uh, my other one would be the uh, Do Not Call list, which I believe, I thought it was George Sr. passed it, but it, the 1-800-DO-NOT-CALL. Yeah. Or, but it turned out when I looked it up on the Internet, it said it was uh, George Jr. Yeah. 2007, I think, or something like that. Yeah, but then that was a, a Republican everything. initiative, not a, not a Democratic yeah. initiative? That was a Republican initiative. Interesting. Okay, well, John... 
I will dig into that. Maybe we've got a winner. I don't know. <laughs> but, but we'll find out, right? We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 